And uh, we will be continuing in where we left off last week in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to take the rest of the chapter, the verses 13 through 25, Lord willing. And uh, there's a lot right in these, uh, these few verses, but uh, I look forward to uh, seeing what the Lord has for you specifically by the Holy Spirit speaking to your hearts. So let's, uh, if you would, make sure your Bibles are open and ready to follow along. Let's read these verses, and then we'll, we'll kind of go down through verse by verse. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your, in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in, in obeying the truth through the Spirit, and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flowers fails, fail, falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Father, we thank you again for the gathering of your saints. Gathering here, Lord, to open up your word and allow your spirit to speak to us through your word. Lord, have your way with us. Convict us. Encourage us. Reveal to us the things that are in our minds that should not be, in our hearts that should not be, things that we're doing in our lives that should not be, that's not pleasing to you, Lord. Speak to us, encourage us to, embold us to make change in how we think, how we feel. And may it just be pleasing to you, Lord, that we would desire to be obedient to your word in Jesus' name, amen. Peter wrote a group to a group of believers who had been scattered across Asia Minor. They were scattered across Asia Minor because they were being harassed for their faith, mistreated because of their faith, persecuted. Lives taken because of their faith. He referred to them as the pilgrims of the dispersion in verse 1 of chapter 1 of, as we started. And he wanted to remind them that God was with them. That God was in control of their lives as a child of God. That they could have this living hope even though they were being harassed and persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, they could still have a living hope in God and that they could trust Him with all of their heart and mind and soul strength, regardless of how they were feeling, regardless of the reality of the persecution, regardless of the fact that their loved ones were taken so early because of their faith. 
They could still have that living faith, and we saw that in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 1. And because as a child of God in the loving hands of a father, the sanctification of the spirit of the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, we see in verse 2, all of that is true. All the way through to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior from the dead, we see in verse 3. And when life gets turbulent and it gets bumpy and and at times seems very mundane like this is all there is to this Christian life moments that kind of seems to flood into the minds and being grieved by the various trials that we will experience as we saw in verse 6 People sometimes question their destination. They will question their salvation. They'll question many things in their lives based upon what they're experiencing or even just based on emotion. Peter encourages these believers that they are secure in their salvation, that these believers could then fully and completely surrender to God's will. And that they could trust in his plans and his purpose for their life. And to now be living or choose to now live in holiness. Living in holiness is now what we will see here starting in verse 13 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 5 verse 1 is all about now man's responsibility. We saw clearly in verses 1 through 12 God's responsibility. Now we will see as Peter will instruct us and encourage us, exhortate us in the fact of how we are to now live holy. We see here in verse 13, therefore, what, therefore what? Therefore, what we just read on verses 1 through 12, based on 1 through 12, God's responsibility, therefore, you and I must gird up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? <laughs> How does that translate into the, today's life, right? Because remember, back in those days, they wore long Gowns, long outfits that went down to the ankles. And so when they needed to take action, when they needed to work or when they needed to run or flee or do something, and they needed to have the freedom of those legs to do, to lift, to run, to fight, they would grab the end of that, those robes, pull that robe up and touch, tuck it into the sash. So most now we have, now we have, a, now we have shorts. Now we're free to run. The loins was your core. Your core strength of your physical body. It was that just below the ribcage to the, those, those cedar thighs of yours. And it was the core that was going to drive to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. So Peter is saying to them, they understood this. The, the Hebrew mind understood what it meant to gird up. And he says, you need to gird up and get your mind right now. Based on understanding of what God has done in and through your life, and you are saved, you're a child of God. You need to get that mind straight. You need to bring the mind under control. You are responsible for how you think and what you think and if it's in control or not. You can blame it all you want on the man and woman right to the left of you. You can blame Satan. You can blame a lot of people, a lot of things. But you, Peter says, the scripture says, we are to gird your mind. Pull up the sleeves. Bring every thought under captivity, the Bible says. We're living the way God wants us to to, to live, is to gird up the mind. That means we're going to gird it up. We're going to think on God. You and I have a choice. Do you think on godly things or do you think on worldly things? 
Do you think upon what God is truth and says in the word? That means you need to read the word to understand what God is telling you. And when the word of God says it, it doesn't matter what you think. You need to change your thinking, gird up your loins, gird up the mind, because you need to ponder on what the truth says in the word of God and believe it. Not what the world tells you, not what the psychobabble tells you, but what you're not even what your feelings are telling you. But what the word of God says in you, to you. So Peter's saying, you must get your mindset. The idea of this phrasing is preparing for action, to pull your thoughts together, get your thoughts together, man. Be disciplined in your mind. If you're not going to be disciplined in your mind, you're going to go squirrely on yourself. You'll go squirrely. You'll see things that are not real. You'll feel things that are not real. All kinds of things become very unstable in your world because you're not grounded on the truths of the word of God, the rock that you stand upon that gives you the foundation to deal with the realities of life. Because challenges are coming. They're already happening in many people's lives. And so many sickness Death around you. Persecution for your faith and work. I mean, loss. It just goes on and on and on and on. And it never ends. But are you based on the rock of the salvation in Jesus Christ? Is your life based on the truths of God? Why is this important? Because to get rid of this loose and sloppy thinking and to bring this rational, reflective power of your mind under control based on the the truths of God is so critical for us. It means to control what you think about, those things that you decide to set your mind about. Because if you do that, it does three things for you and I. It protects us from false doctrine. When you're focused and your mind is set upon the truths of God, it protects us from all the false things that are constantly trying to get into your head. It also, the number one thing that messes with people's minds is anxiety and worry and bitterness and envy and stubbornness and laziness and unloving thoughts coming in. This is what, if you set your mind on those things, You're struggling as a Christian. There's no question you're struggling. You're emotionally unstable. When those happen, because they do happen to all of us, depression hits all of us, oppression just hits all of us, anxiety hits all of us, worry is the number one thing in all across the surveys that take of what your number one problem is as a Christian is worry. Do you know worry's a sin? Do you know that the scripture is clear that worry is a sin? You think it's no big deal. Oh, I'm not going to worry about too much about it. Well, I don't want you to sin at all. Don't, not, not even a little worry is, I don't want you to worry sin at all. But most people don't understand what the scripture says about worry or anxiety or bitterness or envy or lazy or unloving. You're not trusting in your Savior. That's the foundation that you're dealing with. You're not trusting truly in the Savior of your life. Not only does it protect you, but when you gird up the loins of your mind, you can ponder on and center on to the, the return of Jesus Christ and living accordingly. Because if you're not being pulled by the world and all these emotions and issues and problems. And if you center it back on who Jesus is as your Lord and Savior, and the fact that he's coming back for you, it will ground you through the situations that you're dealing with. You will start and continue. What you ponder on is what you're going to live. Did you know that? What you constantly are thinking about is how it's going to come out of your life and, and it'll play out in the words you use, the how you feel, the, the, the responses. I mean, it just, it, it just comes out. But it starts with the mind. That's why Peter says, oh, gird it up. Bring it under control. 
Not only does it protect, not only is it what you ponder is what's going to, you're going to come out, it will escape through the, you know, you, you need to, you, not only do you need to recognize what you ponder on is what's going to come out of you, but it also understands when you gird up the loins of your mind, you're going to, to ponder on who Jesus Christ is and not on worldly things, not on the burdens of your mind and hindering of your spiritual progress, because that's what's going to happen. You're not growing is because you're not pondering on the things of God. You're pondering on the things of situations and the things of this world. But also it doesn't allow you to praise but if you gird up your loins of your mind, you will now be able to praise. As a Christian who is looking for the glory of God and the great motivation of the presence of God in your life, and now in the presence of the Him coming back for you, then through obedience to the Word of God, a Christian can, will not ignore the things of God and what He's trying to do and in through your life. It'll be so focused on every day living for Him and praising Him and just wanting to please Him, it's just going to bring praise from your life. And it all starts with the mind. And not only that, He says, not only do you gird up the loins of your mind, but be sober. The word here is not talking about alcohol or drugs that are altering your minds. That's not the word here in the Greek. What this is, is you're sober. It means, the word means to be calm and steady and controlled. And it has your ability to weigh, weigh, uh, measure weighty matters in your life. It's, you're sober. You're very clear-minded. You're very focused. You're not Scattered brain is a, is a term that we many times can use when you're not right. Be, you need to be sober, not scattered brain. Be focused. It represents a condition free from every form of mental and spiritual loss of self-control is what it means to be sober. Sober-minded. It's an attitude of self-discipline. That avoids the extremes, the highs and lows. And we should also have this optimistic mindset of a hopeful outlook. We see that when he says, Peter says, rest your hope fully upon the grace. Where did the grace come from? That is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit reveals to you who Jesus Christ is and the grace of God that's been poured out upon your life as a child of God, that is an incredible thing to ponder on, to meditate on. You will find rest in hope. Why? Because you can find rest as a Christian in your Christian walk because rest comes when you understand that you have been saved by grace. Not by um, performance. Not based on works. Not based on keeping the law. Not by going down the checklist of do's and don'ts and you checked them and said, I did really good today. I got five out of ten. This is really good today. You're not resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross when you think that way. And so he says, rest in your hope fully, completely upon the grace of God. He talked about it multiple times. We saw in verse 2, he greeted us with grace. In verse 10, he told us of the grace that came to us in Jesus, predicting by the prophecies of the, uh, of prophecies of the old, or prophets of the old. Now he goes further in writing of the grace that is it brought to you when Jesus comes back for you and I. And the only way we're able to stand before Jesus on that day is because of his unmerited Favor and love he gives and will give to you. And that only comes from his infinite heart for you. While we were still sinners, he demonstrated his love by still sending his son for you. Ponder on those things. Do you ponder on those things? 
Not just Sunday. Not just on communion. Day to, every day. Understanding the grace of God in your life. Grace isn't just for the past. When he first gave us our lives to, when we first gave our lives to Jesus. And grace isn't just for today, the present moment, where we live each moment standing in his grace. We see that noted in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. But understand, it, grace is also for the future. When grace will be brought to us, God has only just begun to show us his, the riches of his grace in our lives. For into eternity. And it's this grace of God that is brought to you at the revelation or the coming of Jesus Christ. Do you ponder on the fact that your Savior perhaps today could come for you? For you. Everyone else, it wasn't their day. Or do you ponder the fact that perhaps today is the day that the rapture takes place and, we're, and the whole church is gone? Are you ready? Is your life foundation solidly on the, planted on the rock of, of Jesus? He says here, we do this, why? As, out of obedient children. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your, in your ignorance. So he says, just to be like a child, a childlike heart, a simplicity of just loving your father. Obedient children. Not rebellious children. Not stubborn children. But fulfilling God's call to holiness requires you and I to what? Be obedient children. Obedient how do you do be obedient? By obedient to the word of God. Breaking from that lifestyle of the world you used to live. Breaking away from that lifestyle of selfishness that you just wanted what you wanted however you wanted it. No longer going and living after the former lust that you used to live. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The worldliness. You, no longer, that's not you anymore. You're a child of God. That is not how you behave in this family. Not like the former lusts. We're tra we train up our children. That is not how we behave. That is not the attitude. That's not how you live out in this family. And you train your children up. That is not right and proper, not good, and here's why. And if you don't listen, there's a punishment. There's a consequence. There's a discipline. So you will learn this is what it means to be and how you live in this family. You don't talk back to your mother. That's my wife. Are you kidding me, little one? You don't talk to my wife like that. That's your mother. Honor your mother. You don't walk away from your father when he's talking to you. That is unacceptable. Go back there and stand and listen to your father. There's, there's boundaries. Because they're good and they're right. So it's interesting that we must remember that children inherit the nature of their parents. For some of you, that makes you really scared. I heard it, I heard it somewhere, and I can't remember, and it's probably best I shouldn't remember who said it. But it was such, it just, a, it was a great statement. Oh, I hope they don't have my, the DNA. <laughs> I hope they don't have my DNA. I mean, it was just like one of those moments where you're recognizing this is not good if my kids turn out to be like me. I said, I'm going to remember that and use that, and I just did. Our Father is holy. We're a child of God. Do the math. <laughs> that equals we should be holy. We're supposed to be like our Heavenly Father. 
We're supposed to pursue that. Every day we're supposed to say, Lord, what, God, what, is, what pleases you? What is, what is good and right as a child of God? Because God is holy, therefore, as his children, we should live holy lives. We are partakers to the, the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4 talks about. And this nature is revealed in godly living. That is our decision. Are we going to choose to live holy as a child of God? Peter is speaking truth in love here. He reminds his readers of what they were before they trusted Christ. You lived in your lust, man. It consumed you. Starting with the mind and then lived out in lust. I need to buy something bigger. I need to buy and go to here. And I got to live this way and live that way. Every form, you lived it out because that was your nature as as an unbeliever. But now as a believer, that is not who you to be. You need to change and gird up your mind. You need to live soberly. In control of that mind. Bring every thought under captivity and center it on Jesus and his return and who he is as your savior. And be obedient to the word of God so that your mind is stable. And in fact, you will be able to live godly lives because you ponder on godly living and who he is. It's not complicated. But not always easy. The cause of all this, Peter says, is because of your ignorance. (laughs) I call that my B.C. days. Before Christ, I was ignorant to the fact that my nature, my life was based upon living out lust. Going to be wealthy one day. Going to have the big house one day. Going to own my own business one day. And again, not, those are not bad, but when you lust after those, when they'll become the gods to you, that because your whole identity is to live and get more and bigger and, and living out in life and relationships after relationships and all these things, it'll consume you. But he says you're no longer to live this way. True salvation always is a result in obedience. We see that in Romans 1.5, 1 Peter 1.2 was mentioned. You used to live in, as a child of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 1-3. You used to be a child of disobedience, now you are to be a child of obedience. Unsaved people lack spiritual intelligence. And this causes them to be themselves all kinds of fleshly and worldly indulgences. We see that in Acts, a warning of that in Acts, and we see that in Ephesians chapter 4. I mean, these things we have to recognize what we used to be, and now as a child of God under the power of the Holy Spirit, driven by the Spirit because we are revealing who He is in Christ in our lives, we now have a foundation not to live any longer as children of disobedience. If you're a born-again believer. If you're a born-again believer. Because now you have the Spirit of God living within you. As we learn in the first part of chapter 1, He empowers you to actually live a life pleasing to Him. He gives you the power to do it. The only problem is, is many times we grieve the power of the Holy Spirit in us because we choose to not let go of the former lust, former disobedience as a child of God. That's why you're not growing. For some of you, most of you are all growing. I know, you're you're just, whoo, 
Straight up. I mean, you're just growing so much. I know it. It's the person to the left and to the right of you I'm talking to. One day, Jesus knocked at the door of your heart. Peter says, he knocked at the door of my heart. Go back and read to Peter's, Peter's life. Because we know that God calls us. He knocked at the door of your heart. We see that highlighted in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Is that a, not a beautiful promise? Oh, in my early days, I used to ponder on that. And I was like, oh, Lord, I remember the day you knocked on my heart. Oh, I just felt like you were opening up and you had a plate of brownies and we're walking. Now let's sit down and let's chat. You know, it was just one of those divine moments in my mind. One day, Jesus called to Peter and his friends by the water. And he, what did he say in Mark 1, 17? Come, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Many times we make it complicated to what, oh, you have to say a certain way, a certain thing in the gospel before they can get saved, and they didn't quite say it this way, and they should say this and this. No, 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 no. No, 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 that's not how it works. God can simply say to that person, come, follow me. Do you remember your day of salvation when you heard his voice say, come, follow me, trust me with all your heart, all your life. Do you trust me, follow me? Do you remember that day? Peter certainly did. Was it perfect after that moment when he said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men? <laughs> if you've read Peter's life, he denied Christ three times. It wasn't perfect, but it was part of the plan of changing and molding and shaping this man into a great vessel that God used and empowered with the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter spoke and thousands gave their lives to Jesus. That is amazing. The restoration of a man, equipping the man, empowering the man to do great things for God. Because he was finally broken and surrendered completely to God. So they respond by faith to his call. By faith he, they hear him say, come follow me. And by faith you take the step of acceptance and allow him to come into your life. Because you open the door to allow him to come in because you want him in your life. But look at verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. That statement is out of Leviticus chapter 11. But we see in the Old Testament speaking of the fact that God says, I am holy, you to be holy. He speaks to us today, even in the New Testament. I am holy, you are to be holy. I am God, you need to now have, understand, you need to live differently than you used to be. There should be a change in your life. The whole main idea behind holiness is not a moral purity, not being perfect. It's about the idea of being set apart for God's exclusive use and pleasure. Many times people say, I can't give my life to Christ until I get myself cleaned up and get things right and in order. You're never going to do it. Apart from God, that will never happen. But once I gave my life to Christ, why am I still doing the things I do? Why do I think the things I think of? Why am I not wanting to? Because you're being sanctified by the Spirit of God. You're going to change, but you must understand. Every day, Lord, I'm setting my life apart for your use and pleasure. What pleases you in my life today? And he'll do the work. He's going to mold and shape you and, yes, bring you through the trials and tribulations and the highs and lows, but it's all for the purpose of you continuing to trust completely your life into him. 
But you have to understand, once you give your life to Christ, you are now choosing to separate your life away from this world, away from your own design of your own life, and completely for the purpose and pleasure of him. Have you made that decision? If you haven't, you're struggling. See, the idea that God is is separate, different from his creation, both in the essential nature and in the perfection of his attributes, and he's trying to work and roll in through you instead of building a wall around his holiness, God calls us to come to him and partake of his holiness. See, Living in holiness is not so much something we possess as it is something that possesses us. Living holiness, holiness is God. When you say holiness, it is God. He is holy. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. God himself is the holiness, the purity we need in our lives. He says, take me in. Take all of me. I am holy. I I am holy. Now you be holy. Take me in. I am the holiness you're looking for. I am the purity that you're looking for in your life. The more you take me in, the more he's doing the work and possessing you of of the nature and the attributes of who he is. Living holiness in the Christian life is nothing else but the Spirit of God dwelling, fulfilling, satisfying, A consistent, committed, trusting believer. It is that point of just allowing the Spirit of God to literally dwell and fill you. And satisfy you. Christ is not just some sanctifier. He is our sanctification. He himself is our living holiness. And if Christ lives within our hearts, then just as the fire dwelt within the burning bush, in a living encounter, a living experience, so will be cleansed and pured by the Spirit of God within us. And it will be obvious to everyone around us, just like the burning bush. Are you on fire? Do people see you on fire for Christ? Do they see his holiness burning within you? That people will see your life and just see something that they want and desire in their own life? If Christ is dwelling within you, who is holy and pure, how can our lives not be holy? You know, the word of God has a sanctifying ministry, does it not? The word of God has a sanctifying ministry in our lives and is dedicated to believers to transform their lives. We see that in John 17, 17. Those who delight in God's words, meditate on his word, seek to obey it, and will experience God's direction and blessing in their lives. We see that clearly in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. As the word of God reveals God's mind to you and I, as we read the word, he reveals his mind. What does God think about this? As you read the word, he's going to reveal how he thinks about things. 
And as he reveals that, we should learn it. We should just not go, oh, that's interesting. No, we should learn it and say, how do I apply that? How can I be and think like God on this? Do you not want to know God's heart? To be able to live this life that is pleasing to him? So we should love it. God's will. We should love to know what his will is and to live and do what his will is for our lives. That's what, that's what Peter is saying. He says it's one thing to believe and know and, and want God. But you have your part. You must allow God to work and be the living holiness in your life. Our whole being, our mind, our will, our heart should be controlled by the word of God. Do you want me to say that again? The word must be the controlling factor of your mind and your will and your heart. You have to choose to gird up your loins of your mind. You have to make a decision to be sober-minded. You must rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ in your life. You and I have a decision how we're going to think every single day. And what we ponder on. Are you going to ponder on the word of God and the things and the truths of God? Or are you going to allow your mind to go just emotional ups and downs and, the, and, and ponder on worldliness? Because that decision right there is all you and me. But we understand the word of God can transform our mind. Why? Because we're going to be pondering on it. But who changes the heart of a person? That's God's work. You must to change the way you think, and he will change your heart. You can't change your heart. You can't change someone else's heart. All you can do is help them understand the truths that they need to ponder on and meditate on in their mind. And understand they need to have this mind that is under control, because in line with the word of God, or they're going to not be pleasing to God. But you can't change them. Only God can change them. And if we are really willing to obey God, he will show us his truth. We see that clearly noted in John chapter 7, verse 17. But look at verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So we see the scripture says, if we as Christians call on the holy God, presumably you're needing help. You're calling out for the Father, Father, I need help. We must understand we call on a God who shows no partiality. He doesn't show prejudice. He will look at your conduct. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, because you're on this side of the tracks or that's that you're richer for poor. All the things that the worldly things judge you based on the visual. God doesn't have any partiality. He looks right at you specifically who he created and he looks at your conduct. He didn't look at your parents. He didn't look at your spouse. He didn't look at your children. He didn't look at your job. He didn't look at your boss. He didn't, he didn't look at anybody to justify why you're acting the way you're acting. He looked right at your conduct. And he examined your life and my life. And he is not going to show partiality as a judge, but according to one's work. Conduct, conduct yourselves without, throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, the word fear here, the Greek, is not one of trembling. It's one of being in awe of who he is. It's one of reverence of who God is. 
Understand this is your heavenly father who created you, who created the universe and heaven, everything you see. He is the one you worship, the one you can boldly come into the throne of God because Jesus has made a way for you to communicate directly with reverence and fear or oddness of who he is in your life. You don't have some kind of flippant little attitude like me and my God have some kind of a bro room. You know, man, you, you don't show any reverence. Me and God has this thing worked out. You know, he, he'll just do whatever, you know, we've got to work. Like you're willing, willing and dealing with the God of, of creation. Do you realize you're going to lose? You're not going to get your will. It's only his will to be done as a child of God. You want your own will. You, you, you didn't choose God. You chose Satan. Do you realize there's only two people you could follow? You choose Satan or you choose God. Which one have you chosen? And as a child of God, you chose God. Then you have opened the door to him. And now he says he wants to come in and dine with you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to do a work in you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants you to spend time with him. If you didn't open it to him, you've opened it to Satan. And he'll love to dine with you. Because he's had you your whole life. So... When you sit there and you call upon as a child of God to your father, you, your conduct must change, Peter says. He's, Peter's addressing judgment of a believer's works. You're not, he's not talking about anything about salvation here. He's only talking about as a child of God, not your salvation. He, that has been finished. You've been wiped as white as snow. You've been forgiven. That is not the case. The issue here is, he's, he says that the Father is going to look and judge your works, your conduct in regards to what you did for him. Was it right with the right attitude and the right heart? And then verse 18 through 21, we says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from, from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. We see here in these verses, so important because the high call of godly living makes sense in light of the fact of the price that was paid for your life. Your life wasn't paid with silver and gold coins like you would go purchase like a slave to the, uh, 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 to, at, the, at the market. He says, I gave my life to you. I've given my life to you. I'm not buying you with just some gold, silver, some worthless thing here. He says, I have literally came to you and gave my life the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. That was the value for you. That was the cost for your life. Because you're that precious in the eyes of God. He loves you that much to send his only begotten son to take your sins and my sins on that cross and die for you for all of them that's how much and he purchased us redeemed us as the scriptures said redeemed us to set us free why because we were all in bondage to those sins to those former lusts of our life It's interesting here, Peter describes the frame of mind which seeks to justify by law this aimless conduct. Thinking you can gain merit or some favor of God by some works. Oh, you can earn God's love by your works that you're doing. You can be accepted by God because of your works that you're doing. Peter's saying, no, that's not how it works. They're aimless. They're just scattered. They're not even anything remotely close. You're so off target. Verse 
It's aimless. You can't even justify it with your father's traditions, even if they're religious traditions and all these other things. None of that is going to redeem you because those are corruptible things. No, no. The only thing, the only one, is only by the precious blood of Christ, the unspeakable value, the uncountable cost. That is the only thing. Here we see what we call the doctrine of substitution is right here. For those taking notes. Jesus substituted himself on the cross for you. It was going to be your blood or, his, or was it going to be his blood? And he says, I'll take and be the substitute for you. Because of the love he has for you. And he sees here as a lamb, without blemish, without spot, he could go to the cross because he was sinless. Peter here spoke in reference of complete sinless character of Jesus. The doctrine of sacrifice right here started in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember? When sin was introduced and God sacrificed the first animals, to cover Adam and Eve with the skins of the sacrifice. That's when the doctrine of sacrifice started. But when did it end? Well, we see the next time we see it is a ram died for Isaac in Genesis 22, 13. And the Passover lamb was slain for each Jewish household. And we saw that played out in Exodus chapter 12. In the Old Testament, we speak of the Messiah presented as an innocent lamb, noted in Isaiah 53. And Isaac asked this question in Genesis 22:7: Where is the lamb? Do you remember that? Father, where's the lamb? If there's going to be a sacrifice, where's the lamb? When did that question get answered? Well, we know that John the Baptist answered that question pointedly by looking at Jesus who was coming. And he looked and said, that, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. Do you know that in Genesis 22, there's three words, the very first time we see in the scriptures? Do you know those three words? Love. Worship and Lamb. Genesis 22. Go back and look. Those three key words all are spoken in reference and the fulfillment of the Lamb of God. The, the doctrine of sacrifice, the doctrine of uh, substitution all plays out. And the time that was fulfilled was when John the Baptist pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God. When Jesus came to start the final steps of the ministry. Verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter makes it clear here in verse 20. That Christ's death was an appointment. This was appointment was set before the foundation of the world. It was determined. Before the heavens and the earth were created. This was determined that this was the plan. And only only one plan. Plan A. That's the only plan. And that was Jesus would come and die for the sins of the world. It was ordained by the Father before the foundation of the world. You can even go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 23 for that reference. See, from a human perspective, our Lord was cruelly murdered on that cross. But from the divine perspective, he laid down his life for sinners. And both are true. John chapter, or John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Go back and read that today. 
But we always have to remember that our Lord was raised from the dead. And anyone who trusts in him will be saved for eternity. He made a way. Now this last section, 22 through 25, we'll go into chapter 2 next week, Lord willing. But here, let's take this real quick. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Through the word of God which lives and abides forever because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let me read that last verse 25. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Holy living. Holy living is incomplete if it's not accompanied by love. And I say that because many times you can get into the word of God and so ingrained in the word of God and memorize the word of God and just just indoctrinate yourself into the word of God. And you know it. But you become so legalistic because you have no love. Living a holy life is not complete unless you have the word of God and the love of God in your life. Just by reading the word of God does not make you have love for your brothers and sisters. It certainly helps. But you must have The love, a fervent love. It means a passion, enthusiastic love for your brothers and sisters. So Peter is saying here, yes, you've purified your souls in obeying the truth. You know the word of God through the spirit of God working. But it's a spirit and truth. But you have to have this sincere love for the brethren. A love that is fervent. A pure heart toward them. And that's what's going to give you this new life. One that is pleasing. One is that is good. One that is right. Because in verse 23 he says, you, you weren't born again under, with some corruptible seed. Something that will perish. It is incorruptible. And you will live and abide forever. Why? Because the word of the Lord endures forever. He puts his word above his own name, does it not, the scripture say? Perhaps we could say that if we need more love toward others, it begins with having more of the incorruptible seed, the word of God, set in our hearts and allowed to grow. How important that is. There's two Greek words that's interesting for you note takers. At the very end, in verse 23, Peter uses one of two Greek words for the word word. In 23, he uses the word logos. And in verse 25, he uses the word rima. They're both very subtle words, but meaning, and it's very. You know, slight difference, but still meaning the same purpose here and the exact same idea. And that is the word of God, God's truth, can transform your mind. That it's ready for action. To do what God's called you to do on a daily moment, daily time. And is sober and controlled and ready to do, to please God in all the things we say and do. And we're ready because we're resting in his finished work. That is not what we're striving for. We're just resting in him because of his grace and his mercy upon our lives. And we're watching him work in and through us because he is our holiness. He is who makes us and completes us. We're a child of God and he's doing a sanctified work in us. But as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who he is through, 
through the word of God, by the power of the spirit working and through the word of God, we will then be transformed by the mind. Our hearts will be changed. But ultimately, our love for God will grow so deep. And the love for others will grow so deep. You will have a joy in your walk as a Christian you've never experienced before. That's my hope and prayer for you guys. That you would find, that you would find in your life a deeper, richer, passionate love for God and for others in the body of Christ. And that will also spill over to the love to reach the lost with the gospel. Because he says right there at the end, which by the gospel was preached to you. Will you go out and preach the gospel to those who are lost? Encourage those in the faith? I certainly hope you do.